Gracious God, we give thanks for the gifts of this day and for your mercies, which are new to us every morning. We give thanks, O God, that you have called us into your service and into your people. We pray that you may grant us faithfulness, that we may walk each day as broken and fragile and mortal as we are, with trust that you will provide for us each day. We pray that as we fall, you may grant us strength to get up and to keep on going. We pray that as those around us falter and hurt, that we may encourage them and bless them. We're mindful, O oh God, as we've been reminded in the assembly this morning of the many ways in which we all suffer various afflictions and difficulties and pain. And we pray, O oh God, in your mercy, you who are our maker and creator and redeemer, that you would have mercy on us, that you would give us grace and that you would bless us, that as um, one of your servants said a long time ago, that you would command whatever you will, but then grant what you command of us, that you would give us such grace to love you as you have commanded us to love you. For we have tasted and seen, O oh Lord God, to the measure that we have, that it is good. And we know that we are drawn away and pulled aside in many ways and we pray for your kindness to continue to keep us in your path that our lives may never never outlive our love for you that you would sustain us we pray especially today uh, for little Leah that you would bless her we pray for Wesley Ligon and Pat Roberts and their family in the passing of Virginia we pray for Deborah Butler. We give thanks for the birth of John Luke Farr and the birth of Tate Forrest Mayfield. And we pray your blessings upon their families as they raise these children to the glory of God. We're mindful, O oh God, as well with the topic of our class and of the ways in which we live in a world that continues to be riddled with deep hostility that continues to be afflicted with fear and animosity and hatred. We pray, O oh God, that you may grant us the grace that we might not be caught up in any partisanship, any sectarianship, but that you may help us to be ministers of your reconciliation. That you may teach us, O oh God, to speak the truth as we see it and understand it, and yet we may do so with humility, realizing always that we might be wrong and that we might not know or see as much as we think we know or see. We pray that you would help us to listen to our neighbor. We pray that you would help us to have the courage to ask our neighbor how they see the world and how they experience the world. Deliver us from defensiveness. Grant us the strength that can allow others to speak into our lives even when it makes us squirm. You have said, O oh God, that we shall know the truth and the truth shall set us free. And to the degree that we can bear the truth, we pray that you would help us to hear it this day, this week, this season of our lives. We give you thanks for this church. And we give you thanks for the many that have been brought here through many years and many decades who have in so many ways sought to do your will. 
and who have sought to do good and faithful service in your kingdom. And we're grateful to be a part of this community. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Come on in. Next week, we hope that um, you will come. We've kind of we, we've done hit a number of things so far. Um, I guess it was uh, two weeks ago. Uh, Richard Hughes shared with us some about some of the history of uh, churches of Christ and uh, issues of reconciliation and division in churches of Christ and the ways that that's been construed among us. Uh, last week, I offered to us four different theological principles that I think are key to keep in place in this conversation. Uh, those were the proclamation of the kingdom of God as a real alternate socio-political reality in the world. Second was the reality of the principalities and powers, not as simply uh, demonic spirits floating around out somewhere in the ether, but as real powers of structures and systems of alienation and hostility and oppression in the world, uh, that we, we, we need to be facile with the biblical vision because that biblical vision can allow us to see things we might not be able to see otherwise. And it's, it's, moreover, it's a vision that um, is, is lacking deeply in the Western world. And if you look at kind of socio-political uh, options that were given, none are taking very seriously these kind of these notions of principalities and powers and the way in which we need to think about those things and struggle with those things and see their rightful place and see the ways in which they overreach. Third, I suggested uh, the reality of church as a real and viable community, as the place of reconciliation, as a place in which reconciliation can occur, should occur, ought to occur, because it is our calling. Uh, and then finally, this notion of suffering love, of seeking to always speak the truth and to do so with courage, to know that as we bear witness to the kingdom of God, it requires courage. It requires a willingness to enter into tension. It requires a willingness to say things that are hard to say. It requires a willingness to suffer. It requires a willingness to participate in suffering love. Today, Robert is going to talk to us about the uh, history of, of what we call the black churches of Christ and uh, give us some history there and some of the challenges and developments in that regard. And then what we'd like to ask you for, to do ne next week is we want to kind of take a pause and ask you um, hopefully we can get a big whiteboard in here for next week, but I want to ask what you to do is to come with, from what you've seen so far, not only in this class, but just as you've been thinking about these things, it's been all on our conscience so very much through the last summer especially. Uh, what are major questions, concerns, issues, frustrations, thoughts, uh, things that stand before you, uh, and, and let's just kind of think together and dream together and talk together some about what are, what are major things we might want to think about, address as we go forward in this class uh, for the rest of the term. So with that, we welcome Robert. All right, I hope everybody came with an open mind this morning because some of the things that I'm going to say may make you uncomfortable. It definitely made me uncomfortable when I did this research. Uh, some of the stuff, uh, the details behind some of the stuff that I'm going, going to tell you this morning, some of it made me angry, uh, some of it made me cry, uh, but um, unfortunately this is the history of what has happened over the years. Um, bear with me this morning, I'm going to try to read my notes, and uh, sometimes I have a hard time reading what I 
throat. So um, my wife told me this morning, do not get up there and stumble like you did while you were talking to me. <laughs> so I will try not to do that. I grew up at the Taylor Street Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. I was always told that the Church of Christ started in AD 33. I was taught that in order to be saved, one had to become a member of it. It was the one true church. This was my truth for over 30 years. I would argue anyone in order to defend this fact. However, the history of the Restoration Movement reveals some things to me that I never knew. I, I learned that before the movement, what we know of as the Church of Christ was non-existent. I never learned this information at Taylor Street. Why is that? Why well, was I always taught that the Church of Christ that we know started in AD 33? If it was the one true church, then why was this church so segregated? These are the questions that I started to ask myself, so I decided to dig deeper. I started to do my own research. In that research, I found that Marshall Keeble was baptized in 1895 at the Gay Street Christian Church. Before this time frame, there was no such thing as a black church of Christ. I found out that Keeble was one of the four men who left the Gay Street and Leah Avenue Christian Church due to the use of instruments during worship. Keeble, along with Alexander Alec Campbell, S.W. Womack, who was Keeble's father-in-law, and G.P. Bowser, left the Christian church to start an a cappella Church of Christ among blacks. This information presented some problems. Marshall Keeble, the man that I was always taught about growing up, had not been baptized until the church that I had always been told was the only right one. Why did we esteem him so highly? Remember, I was taught that a person needed to be baptized into the Church of Christ in order to be saved. If people were not members of the Church of Christ, they were outside of Christ. If they were outside of Christ and they were religious, we said that they were religiously wrong. This also presented another issue. How was the Church of Christ that I grew up knowing the Church of the Bible? Something was not adding up. Here's a man that was baptized into a church that we considered a denominational church, but we allowed him to preach in the Church of Christ. Why did we not call Keeble a denominational preacher? According to what I was taught growing up, that's what he was. During his preaching career, Keeble adopted the doctrine of our conservative white brothers. He was the more prominent preacher among African Americans, and he trained several of the young men who were preaching in these new congregations. So his ultra-conservative theology is what was passed along to the black churches of Christ. Do you see an issue with this? Here is a man who was baptized in the Christian church, but he is now telling people that there is only one church, and it is the Church of Christ. If you don't get baptized into this church, you are going to hell. The book Undying Dedication about the life of G.P. Bowser started to open up my mind. In this book, I learned something else about the famed Brother Keeble. I was always taught about all of the good things that Brother Keeble had done over the years. 
I was taught about how he was responsible for over 200 of the black churches of Christ and thousands upon thousands of black members. He was esteemed as a great man. But while reading this book, I found out that this great pioneer had a weakness. His kryptonite seemed to be white men with money. They were able to manipulate him. Some will disagree, but there were multiple incidents where Brother Keeble had a chance to speak up for the rights of black congregants. Instead, he chose to go along with the racist treatment that white brothers imposed upon them. He chose to keep the peace, keep the peace, and not challenge the status, the, the status quo called Jim Crow. This is where Keeble and other black preachers parted ways. G.P. Bowser was one of those preachers. He fought for equality of black people and refused to bow to the races, the racism and the power structure within the fellowship like Keeble did. Because of that, his ministry struggled financially. Brother Bowser was an educated man, so he stressed the importance of learning the Bible. We always hear about Nashville Christian Institute, or NCI as we know it, but how many of us have heard of the schools that Bowser started? According to Travis Hurley in his blog post on the, the Dream of Destiny website and the Undying Dedication book, Bowser founded and struggled to maintain several schools designed to educate black preachers and church workers. Every school that Bowser launched, like Silver Point Christian Institute near Cookville, Tennessee, 1907 to 1914, was done so apart from the white oversight and provision, except for a disastrous effort in Nashville in 1920, where the all-black student body at this all-black school was still expected to enter through the building's back door. Bowser refused to abide by this expectation. Thus, that effort was doomed from the outset. Other schools that Bowser started included Bowser Christian Institute in Fort Smith, Arkansas, 1938 to 1946. And with the help of his protégés, J.S. Winston, R.N. Hogan, and Levi Kel uh, Kennedy, the Southern Bible Institute in Fort Worth, Fort, Fort Worth, Texas in 1948. SBI had 45 students the first year and the following year, it was located in Terrell, Texas and became Southwestern Christian College, a Church of Christ college that continues to this day. But for the most part, white preachers loved Keeble because he didn't stir the pot like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or G.P. Bowser. So there you have it. I learned that there was an elephant in the room and the Church of Christ refused to deal with it. Jim Crow was in full effect within our fellowship. Everything was fine as long as preachers did not try to bring the races together. Preachers like Foy E. Wallace Jr. were huge proponents of keeping the races segregated. There was a time where he actually chastised Marshall Keeble and told him that he needed to make sure that preachers like R.N. Hogan stayed in their place by not sharing a room with a white male preacher. He actually said it was disgusting. Wallace did not like the fact that Hogan was gaining support from white members. Wallace actually preached sermons that chastised anyone who stood against the laws of the land. He taught white congregants that anyone who supported civil disobedience 
was in direct contradiction to the word of God. And I got that off of YouTube. I heard it from the man's own mouth. Therefore, no one had to, therefore, one had to obey the law, even though the law was not in favor of the oppressed. Foy Wallace was influential in the life of Marshall Keeble. Most of the black congregations that I grew up around had the same ultra-conservative views that Brother Keeble possessed. These views helped teach us to remain silent about issues in order to keep the peace. Because of this, we have been separated from the white churches of Christ since the 1800s. Even though preachers like Brother Keeble and Brother R.N. Hogan preached for mixed audiences during the 50s and 60s, there, they were only, uh, there was only uniformity in the audiences, not unity. And Brother Hunter can speak to that. The only thing these two cultures had in common was the same ultra-conservative doctrine that they were the only ones who were right. Over time, I learned a reality that most people are unwilling to admit. The conservative white churches uh, of Christ think that their doctrine is the only God-approved doctrine. In contrast, the black churches of Christ believe that the conservative white, church, uh, white congregations are wrong because they will not fellowship with us. Therefore, our doctrine is better because we have a more inclusive doctrine. But this doctrine is only inclusive to those who believe like we do. Growing up, I remember the following. Having a white tablecloth on the communion table. Eating in the sanctuary was forbidden. Fellowship halls were a no-no. Dancing was of Satan. Missing a service meant you were unfaithful. Clapping was considered instrumental music. Raising your hands is what was done only in the club. And shouting was denominational. This is how I grew up. We were very skeptical of, and forgive me if you work there, because I go to school there, but this is what we called it, David Liberal University. <laughs> if brothers went there for preaching, it was almost guaranteed that they were, have, they were leaving the faith. As the years progressed, the preachers became a little more educated. We started to move away from the ultra-conservative roots. This changed the game. Some of the white brothers that used to support Taylor Street started to shy away from us when we brought in preachers that they did not think were sound in the faith. Taylor Street reached out multiple times to white brothers. When I was in the youth group, we would do things with one of the local congregations. We had a pretty decent relationship built up. However, after their youth minister left, the partnership seemed to fall apart. So when I served as the youth leader at Taylor Street, I tried to stress the importance of us doing things together across racial lines. If we were truly the one true church, then we needed to show the world that we knew how to get along as brothers and sisters in Christ. I took the kids to the local uh, youth events. Of course, we were the only brown faces in the building. It was very weird because these were the same people that I grew up with at school, but I had no idea that we were apart of the same tribe. Why? It goes back to the fact that we have been segregated since the 1800s. This is our very sad reality. In 2014, Tiffany and I decided to leave Taylor Street. We wanted to attend a white congregation. 
it became our mission to bring diversity to the Church of Christ. I asked several questions about the congregation that we decided to attend. This is before Otter Creek. This decision was a bittersweet one. I like the fact that there were some things for Leah and Tiffany could be around some young women her age. However, I felt uneasy. Why? It was because I felt like there was some, some, uh, something there that was taking me back to my ultra-conservative roots. Guess what? I was right. As soon as the leadership found out that I was attending Lipscomb University, the witch hunt began. They started to question our beliefs. What was ironic is the fact that we were already teaching. So I knew the motive. I knew the ultra-conservative mindset because that was my life at one point. I knew that if someone with a liberal mindset had a chance to teach, they would disrupt the soundness of our congregation. For the first time in my life, I was on the other side of the track. Systematic racism also raised its ugly head during this time period. Period. One may say, how? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I started leading, the songs, uh, leading song service as a young man. I, I hadn't been in the church long when the old men threw me up there and they were like, son, you're going to lead song service. And I was like, I don't know how to sing. They were like, you'll be all right. Just get on up there. <laughs> That's how we did it in the black church. Just throw them on up there. My father said the same thing pretty much happened to him. Uh, after he was baptized, he was, he was asked to, uh, to start teaching. And not too long after uh, he was baptized, he started teaching the, uh, the teen class and he's been teaching it ever since. And that's been since 1970, whatever it is. It, we picked with him because uh, he actually taught the other elder that's there at the congregation. That's, that's a pretty old guy. But, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I had been singing at Taylor Street for years. I had visited other congregations and led songs there. But this one elder at this congregation told me multiple times that we were going to have a song practice. This one particular Sunday, he told me that he was going to teach me the right way to sing. So I, I replied, oh, so I've been singing wrong all of these years? He didn't know what to say. As time went along, Tiffany and I encouraged some of the members to become more involved with activities at other congregations. One of the things that we did was attend a VBS at a, a congregation that Tiffany and I had visited multiple times. I had even preached at this congregation, so we had a pretty decent relationship. As the preacher led the songs for the kids, he got to the song, If You're Happy and You Know It. The preacher did not skip the part about clapping. So I looked at the faces of some of the members of our congregation, and I could tell that they were uncomfortable. So this opened up a conversation. I asked one of the members if clapping would send a person to hell, and she replied, yes. I let her know that I do not believe that God is going to send my black brothers and sisters to hell for clapping. During a, a future conversation, the sister gave me a copy of this book right here. It's what I call the Church of Christ Creed book. And as those of you all that grew up in the Church of Christ, you know that we don't have a creed book. But this is what I call the Church of Christ creed book, piloting straight, 
by Dave Miller, PhD. These incidents and this book helped me to see that the tribe that I loved, the Church of Christ, had taught my blackness out of me. Anything that looked African was viewed as a sin. Just read through that book. I am thankful for my father and Malcolm X. Yes, I said Malcolm X. I was always taught to embrace my blackness despite some people not liking it. Did you hear what I just said? A black Muslim, the former leader of the Nation of Islam, taught me to embrace my African roots. Christianity didn't teach this to me. Christianity said that Jesus was a Jew, but every depiction that I saw growing up of this Jewish man was a white man. I grew up in the black section of a white man's church. Remember what I said earlier in the presentation. Brother Keeble held, Keeble held true to the doctrine of the ultra-conservative white brothers. There was no blackness involved except our spirited song services. OC, look at our song service. When was the last time you heard some Kirk Franklin? <laughs> or some Travis Green? Sometimes there are only songs, only songs that are written by blacks that can speak to the black soul. I submit to you, we left our blackness when Womack, Campbell, Keeble, and Bowser left the Christian church. This has caused issues over the years. Black churches of Christ have been quiet about social issues because we are more concerned about what the brotherhood thinks about us instead of being concerned about what Jesus wants us to do. Our distrust of higher education and biblical studies from schools like Lipscomb is twofold. Number one, some of us are still holding on to the fact that our schools would not let us attend. And number two, we are skeptical about our preachers learning things outside of the Church of Christ tradition because we have to stay true to the old path, which is pretty much our commitment to our conservative roots that were passed to us by our pioneer preachers. Just like physical slavery, we ended up in the same situation religiously and mentally. We were free when we were with the Christian church because we had choices. With the Church of Christ, we had to follow a strict regimen and we were closely monitored by the white leaders of the day. Things have not changed much. I have heard and read stories of black preachers who have received death threats and dealt with defamation of character that has caused them to miss out on preaching engagements that ultimately took money away from them. Remember the history of Bowser? I also have personal experiences to prove this point. I have a text message that uh, was sent to me by a white preacher who was trying to save my soul from hell by talking down to me. He hates the fact that I attend Lipscomb and Otter Creek. Another white brother told me that he could not work with Tiffany and me in an attempt to feed the community. This is, uh, there's another white brother who told people who are close to me that Taylor Street needed to get me to come back home. That was a 4E Wallace tactic. Get control of your boy. I received a message from a black brother about how I was talking bad about the church. He didn't like what I was telling people. I asked him what was I saying that was wrong. Jesus taught these things. I asked him if, I could, uh, if uh, we could study together or did we have to agree to disagree. He chose the latter. I believe in taking the shackles off of people's minds when it comes to the liberation of women, the poor, 
blacks and other oppressed people. I have heard that uh, I have a childhood friend who is still trying to find out whether or not Otter Creek has instruments. This is how strongly these men feel about me not following their enslaving theology. Guess what they all have in common? All of them are preachers. As you can see, I did not realize it, but my ministry was enslaved for over 20 years due to my theology. I had to experience a firsthand account of the mental and religious slavery that I was involved in and trying to force upon others, black, white, women, and men. Unfortunately, this is the mindset of so many within the black churches of Christ. One has to stay more committed to the traditions of our preaching forefathers than to Jesus the Christ. Doesn't this sound like the same thing that Jesus warned the religious leaders about in the Gospels? This is why education is imperative in the forward progress of our ministry of reconciliation. My black brothers and sisters need to see what we are doing in this class. They need to see us leading. They need to see us speaking freely, and they need to see us working with our white brothers and sisters in this ministry of reconciliation. If you are serious about the ministry of reconciliation, it is imperative that you learn to sit at the table and listen. And this may get me in trouble. I'm speaking firsthand about this right here. The problem that blacks have is the fact that too many white people, especially white men, believe that they know what's best. Guess what? You don't. This continues the division that has always been there in our fellowship. This only furthers white privilege and keeps racism alive. You may ask, how can you say that, Brother Jackson? I'm glad you asked that again. It's because the fact of the matter is, Massa did this for over 300 years. And some whites have been doing this for almost 200 years since then. Until we learn this, we cannot truly have a multiracial church. All cultures have to be represented. Reconciliation begins in, the heart, in your heart. Then it moves to sharing your table with someone who is not like you. The ultimate test is when you are able to practice hospitality in your home. When you are able to invite an enemy or perceived enemy to sit at the table, to sit at your table and have a meal with you, then you are truly learning how to practice the love of Jesus. Look at what Jesus did with Judas and Peter. He knew that both of them would deny him, which ultimately led to his death. But his last meal was shared with both of them at the table, and he even washed their feet. Marinate on these things. Thank you. Um, Yes, sir. Can this be posted online like yes, sir. last week? Yes, sir. Actually, Sister Becky right here has recorded it. It's already up. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 not the audio, but the video. The video, yes, sir. Great, great. Yeah. Thank it's, you. it's already up there. Thank you. I will share it again. Thank you. You're welcome. You. Um, I'm going to summarize just a few things that stuck out to me, and then we'll, take, we'll have about uh, five minutes for comments and feedback. Um, I heard the 
basic premise of what you shared with us this morning being uh, that so-called conservative churches of Christ, uh, which I would note is kind of like an early 20th, mid-20th century churches of Christ and not really conservative churches of Christ like 19th century, but conservative churches of Christ allied with conservative socio-political stance regarding race gave us black churches of Christ. That um, this... I heard Robert say, taught my blackness out of me. Yes. That a black Muslim taught me to appreciate my African roots and Christianity did not. I grew up in the black (laughs) section of a white man's church. We left our blackness. Black churches of Christ have been quiet about social issues um, because of fear of or distrust of white churches of Christ a distrust of higher education because first the racist history of those institutions and secondly because of a fear of things outside that conservative Church of Christ tradition and I heard you in the end draw this kind of strong analog this is this was yet another kind of social manifestation of the practice of slavery another manifestation of marginalization along the way thank you for sharing yeah. We'll open it up for questions, comments. Well, Robert, uh, just, just a couple of observations. One, uh, Richard Hughes is saying that uh, the black man that actually has a picture with uh, Malcolm X uh, in, in, the, in the book that you did. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we live in the South. Mm-hmm. Because the northern churches of Christ, even the black ones, tend to be more progressive. Yes. The problem is the movement is the southern based movement. Yes. So it's like it may be the, the, the numbers are so small in the, the northern. It's kind of irrelevant. But some of the things you're saying about are so complex, and I'm dealing with them right now. One, the Lipscomb. Yeah. Um, myself, it, it's so difficult for me to reconcile one of my kryptonite, which is white men with money who will give it to me. Um, it's not just a white man with money, it's a white man with money that will give me some of it. Well. I used to not feel that way, but yeah. you all had seen me with my daughter. Um, and she eats every day. She wants things every day. I've tried to break her both of those habits. <laughs> <laughs> so not necessarily something that, that she's going to do. And I, I wonder, uh, I recently, um, the other day, I went to my advisor, and they said, well, William, you know, these are your classes, but you need to file for graduation. And tears started coming out of my eyes. Because mm-hmm. when I started uh, my schooling, um, my mother was alive, my grandparents were alive, and um, it was extremely difficult for me to get to the meeting because I'm actually gonna finish my college education and this sort of thing. But when I think about it, I tried to get into TSU and because of some institutional problems with me because I was a bit of a campus militant when I was there when I was younger. <laughs> but the people at Lipscomb did. So I'm thinking, like, this is so bizarre yeah. because am I selling out? But to a certain degree, when I look at guys like people and I look at some of these other guys, yeah. I can't 100% at this point in my life cast them out. Yeah. Because if I was in the situation, yeah. I don't know what I would do. Yeah. But I know what I'm doing right now. Yeah. I'm going to be walking across the stage in August and looking like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that so much of what we're dealing with right now, how do we, and this is the last thing I want to say, is how do we incorporate the tradition, the traditional African, because Christ 
Judaism, whatever you want to call it, Christ was African because the beginning of man, the beginning of time, the first people in our society were African. Mm -hmm. How do we reintroduce the African roots mm -hmm. into the church of Christ? That's mm -hmm. the challenge. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say this last thing. The two most outlandish or extravagant energetic song leaders I've ever had and I've seen in my life were Nick Oldham and Justin Monday. And because uh, I've always, when I first came here, and I sit next, <laughs> sit next to Justin, I was like, yeah. man, why is this guy singing so hard? Like, yeah. I don't, because <laughs> <laughs> growing up in the church, it is frowned upon. Yeah. And, and when I saw that he was a worship leader, yeah. he like moved when yeah, he sang. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, why is he doing that? Yeah. So I, I think that it's possible, but I appreciate the congregation for having this conversation, because yeah. it is awkward. It, it is so. very awkward. Um, no. Right here, yeah. Well, just a quick observation. It's Keeble, and picking up on what you said, Wayne, Keeble, quote, said that the gospel takes the dance out of a man <laughs> and sets him up on deceit. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of things when you when you start doing the history on it. There's a lot of things that people said that will it it will it will pierce you. I mean, they learn the lessons well. Yeah, brother, brother Hunter got to see him in action firsthand. Justin, one of the things you said that really sticks out to me and it's just continually on my mind all the mm -hmm. time is someone who's trying to be an ally mm -hmm. um, to marginalized communities, black and brown communities, mm -hmm. is white people white splaining. Mm -hmm. trying to, to correct mm -hmm. um, it, it's and I think part of that is because of our Church of Christ heritage especially is that we're so focused on things being right yeah. that we're not willing to listen and recognize that maybe the reason that someone's coming <coughs> to the situation is because of the experiences yeah. that they've had I, one of the things for me right now that's really troubling with, with a lot of the, the social justice movements that are going on is, is there seems to be this almost the same side of a different coin with, with the fundamentalism of this person is now my, like my enemy was over here and now this person is my enemy and, and I want to be like, no, that's not right. But then I'm, I'm just having to be very disciplined about people who have been in systems of oppression for a long time, there's, it's not the right time or place for, for me to come in and tell them, hey, you're othering this other group of people, which is exactly what's been done to you. There's, there's so much listening. But can you, can you talk maybe a little bit about how white folks who want to be allies to the community can, can listen in situations where we're, we're really uncomfortable with things, whether because it's just new to us or whether because we actually think it's, it's damaging? Yeah, one one of the things that I've that I've seen is is first of all the the listening um, process, but uh, Otter Creek has actually done a pretty good job of this to this point. Is um, when there are people in your family or your your circle of friends um, that have that are saying things against what your black and brown friends have said, uh, you going to bat for us because we can only say so much to your circle of friends. It's going to take them hearing it from you. Um, you actually backing up what we have said. Um, there was a sister that told me not too long ago that 
uh, one of the uh, um, preacher's wives that I that I knew growing up said that uh, and basically just paraphrasing that the black church of Christ would probably never uh, integrate uh, I'm just paraphrasing because it's the one thing left that we have I mean what little bit of Africanness that we have within the black churches of Christ if we integrate that may take that away and that is the fear of a lot of black churches of Christ um, do I agree with that to a point? I do, because um, I have seen situations where uh, when blacks are involved at a, at a white congregation, they're, they're pretty much suppressed. Or if they're not suppressed, they want to, like, that, uh, like what I said about that elder, they want to get that African out and, and put, that, put the European into this black man. This black man knows nothing about European ways of, of singing because, I mean, you should have seen the, the song service. Um, the la uh, there was one lady that said that she had never sung that hard. Well, it had been a long time since she had sung that hard in her life. The kids loved it. The congregation was enjoying it, but this elder didn't like it because I didn't sound like he did. I didn't have the, I didn't sing by the notes. I didn't have that opera sound. All I had was the soul, what little bit of soul that God gave me. Brother Hunter. <laughs> I, I know several <coughs> preachers, African American preachers, yeah. that had churches that said they would never have a white elder yeah. to lead the church. Yeah. And there, I know some preachers that have said that in Nashville. Yeah said that to me personally. And the reason being is what happened with the NTI. Yeah. There was a lawsuit that uh, uh, when, when, when they were more or less uh, uh, shut down. Yeah. Uh, and when uh, Brother Burden you know, uh, had the board to be predominantly white and mm -hmm. Brother Kale came in and, uh, and virtually closed the school down. There's a lot of African American preachers that were came up under people at the time of witness and yeah. the lawsuit that ultimately resulted in that, they, they said that, you know, I, and I'm saying racism is common in the black church as, and also in some white churches. And so they, you know, they will permit white people or Caucasians to attend the church, yeah. but then they're not going to put them in the leadership position. Yeah. Yeah. And because they're afraid of, uh, they have a history of being, uh, the deck being stacked against them. Yeah. Right. So, one more comment. And, uh, you know, Brother Keeble, uh, you know, when I, my first job in, in 1974 was at the insurance company, all my managers were members of church rights affiliated with Richmond College University. And, and they just admired the heck out of Brother Keeble. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was like a god to them. He just made them do what they wanted. It's amazing how you mentioned Keeble. But you hardly ever heard about Bowser. That's right. Yeah. And Bowser's probably been responsible. Yeah. And he's probably been responsible for more of the black preachers that are out there right now than than Keeble was. Yeah. Um, man, I hate I hate to stop it. Can y'all hold y'all's questions for next week?
If you need to, can you write them down? Because look, because <laughs> we need to hear what you what you have to say. All right. Thank y'all for for being with us this morning.